Welcome to Making Waves, a show about sound art on WGXC. Making Waves is a monthly radio program produced for WGXC Wave Farm by New Adventures in Sound Art, or NASA. On today's program, we'll be listening to four fixed-media radiophonic works from the 2017 edition of NASA's Deep Wireless Festival, which were presented on our February 18th concert entitled Stories, Reflections. We'll hear works by Parisa Sabat, Joan Schumann, Martin Rodriguez, and Debashi Sina. Deep Wireless Festival of Radio and Transmission Art is held annually in January and February and takes place in Toronto, Canada, as well as international broadcasts. Deep Wireless is a month-long celebration of radio art and transmission art and includes performances, special radio broadcasts, artist residencies, and coincides every two years with the biannual Transex Transmission Arts Symposium. The first piece on the program is Visiting Grandpa by Parisa Sabat. Parisa is an Iranian composer who works in both acoustic and acousmatic mediums and is currently pursuing doctoral studies at the University of Toronto. This work is a multi-channel soundscape based on the composer's memories of her grandfather. It was written when she learned that the Iranian Revolutionary Guard demolished the historic cemetery of Baha'is in Shiraz in Iran, where Parisa's grandfather's remains were buried, as well as those of many other Baha'is. This work was one of two recipients of the University of Toronto's inaugural Anne H. Atkins' Prize in Composition, which is awarded to any undergraduate or graduate faculty of music student in recognition of the most outstanding electroacoustic composition. Here's Visiting Grandpa. I don't quite recollect Golistana Javid, the old Baha'i cemetery of Shiraz, which has been recently razed to the ground. I only know that my paternal grandfather, as well as many other Baha'is martyred between 1981 and 1983, have been buried there. The stories I've heard about my grandfather sound more like myths. My aunt, his daughter, told me that he had an herbal medicine store in Marvdasht, and that the local people believed very much in the efficacy of his remedies and treatments. Some would even say that he had healing powers. One night, my aunt recalled, people came to their door bringing a person whose foot was injured in an accident. My grandmother and aunt insisted that the injured person should have been taken immediately to the hospital. But those who were with him, believing in my grandfather's healing power, refused to take him from the house. My aunt told me that my grandfather, who was fearless, asked them to pray then he started to treat the injured foot by opening the wound with a knife. My grandfather's children have managed to keep my grandfather's treatment notes and herbal medicine safe, retrieving them just before his store was sealed after the revolution. 
A few years ago, when I had a minor fracture in my finger, my dad made a confection of some of those herbal remedies and gave it to me to apply on my finger, believing that it would help the bone to recover faster. I was three or four when my grandfather was taken into Adelabad prison in Shiraz. My mom has told me, a couple of days before your grandfather received the order to appear in the Islamic court, we were all at his house, chatting together and watering the flowers in the backyard. It was a nice day. As we were chatting, a white dove flew down and sat on your grandfather's right shoulder. He picked up the dove, let it fly away, and said, I've been chosen too. My father does not say much about my grandfather, but he tells one story over and over. When my father was called to appear in the court, I gave him a ride to the court building and took him inside early in the morning. But on the next day when I went there to follow up his case, I was told Nobody with such a name was brought here, ever. Most memories I have of my grandfather date back to the days when we went to visit him, and my uncle as well, in the prison. I would wait the whole week for that visiting day. It was a joyful time for me and the other children. We used to play together in the big field outside the prison until the Baha'i families were called to go inside and visit their imprisoned parents, siblings, or other relatives. Parents would buy us ice creams in those hot days of summer to keep us hydrated. Recall that the last time we went to see my grandfather in the prison, he was sitting in a wheelchair. All my uncles and aunts had gathered around his booth, talking, waving, and sending kisses from behind the window. I think my uncle or somebody else lifted me up so I could see my grandfather. But since he was sitting in a wheelchair, I wasn't able to see him through the crowd. Yet, 
because I didn't want my uncle to feel bad, I told him, yeah, yeah, I saw him. After that, I begged my mom several times to take me back to the booth so I could see my grandfather one more time. But she said, no, the visiting time is over. We should leave. My grandfather was in jail for a short time. He had diabetes and it grew worse over that period. And eventually, due to the lack of medicine and medical attention, he passed away in the prison. After his death, I thought he was God for a while. My parents framed a big picture of him in which he was seated on a Persian carpet, leaning on a striped green pillow. They hung the frame on the wall. I don't remember who told me to sit in front of that picture to say my prayers. Perhaps because of this and because my grandfather in the picture had a very innocent and sweet face, I thought he was God. When I got a bit older, I thought God was like my grandfather, sitting with the legs crossed, leaning on a pillow, listening to our prayers. Years later, a friend who was in prison with my grandfather told me that because of his diabetes and the lack of medicine in prison, my grandfather's feet had swollen so much that they were bruised and even bleeding sometimes. This friend and other younger friends used to put him on their backs, carry him up and down the stairs, give him baths, and make jokes and laugh together. A Baha'i physician who also happened to be imprisoned had asked that the other Baha'i prisoners collect the meat in their meals and give it to my grandfather so that he would have the strength to fight his diabetes. I remember that after the execution of the Baha'is, my uncle and a couple of other young Baha'is used to go to Golistan and Javid the old Baha'i cemetery of Shiraz, in order to help excavate new graves and water the lawn and flowers. My uncle promised to take me there one day and finally arranged a date. However, I don't know exactly what happened, but the day before that date, he said that nobody was supposed to go there again. He nevertheless promised to take me there one day. Apparently, Baha'is have been banned from going to the cemetery ever since. Now that it has been raised to the ground, I don't think that my uncle can ever fulfill his promise.
That was Parisa Sabat's Visiting Grandpa. This next piece is by Joan Schumann, and it's called Flesh Has Turned Itself to Stone or Dust. Joan is based in coastal California, where she teaches online radio production and theory classes at the New School for Public Engagement in Manhattan. Flesh Has Turned Itself to Stone or Dust finds itself at an intersection of philosophical and poetic questions about what is entailed in humanely raising animals for slaughter. Using text from John Berger, the piece includes various narrative voices woven through a story of two farmers, including those of animals meant for slaughter. Here's Joan Schumann's Flesh Has Turned Itself to Stone or Dust. When the goats have done all their work and they're going into retirement, that they deserve to just chill out and retire and eat our blackberries down and have plenty of We know we're gonna be here the longest. Yeah, for sure. Get named goats named Arizona and Mocha. Mm -hmm. How long are they gonna be with you? I think they live about 20 years. We're gonna keep them. Well, that's sort of a topic. Of that might be an issue later. <laughs> she was taken to the to the slaughterhouse and and shot in the head. I don't think I could eat mocha. And it's sad, and I hate and I hate to like visualize it and all that kind of stuff. I don't think I could send them off. They don't have the same dreaded horror of death that a lot of people have. So I don't know what will happen to them. They might live up here, and I might. <laughs> and my own money feeding them. Are you there? Let's see. Are you back there? I don't see hey, you. Hey, are you back there? Hey, goat. What are you doing? Goat. Hey. Hey, goat. Hey, goat. Hey. Where are you? Hey. What are you doing? Hey. I just assume say slaughter. I mean, usually you don't eat anything you're sacrificing. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's difficult. Like I know Jen is a vegetarian because of the emotional attachment she has to animals, and I can totally understand that. I'm emotionally attached to, but I don't know. I guess I just like to embrace the other fact of life. Yeah, that eventually they would die. And also, I think there's a certain degree of, we have to give the animals a certain degree of um, 
respect like they they don't necessarily think of death in the same way we do like <clears throat> maybe maybe just maybe this is just me saying or like trying to rationalize it but i kind of think that animals have a, they don't have the same fear they approach it much more pragmatically I don't think I could send them off of like, um, without feeling just like the worst goat owner in the um, world. <laughs> so, I think I mean, if you keep that in mind, it's 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 not as it's not as bad. I mean, I don't know. Esperanza probably understood because she sort of saw her like laying down on her back like cows never do, like she was surrendering, sort of. Hmm. I don't remember seeing her like that. But yeah, I do think animals have a, a sense of, of, of the energy yeah, that's out there. Yeah. In an ideal world, we would have done, done the slaughtering here ourselves and she wouldn't have been afraid in her last hour or two of life. That's the part that I regret. Not her getting turned into meat, but just the part that we had to take her to the slaughterhouse and go through that whole kind of un, that cold atmosphere. Luckily, we were really lucky. The Redwood Meats is super close by. Most people have to schlep their animals, like, how many hours? I don't know. Like, in a huge stock trailer with dozens of other terrified cattle and then go through some, like blood splattered slaughterhouse but we have the redwood meats right here which is just like a little family owned i mean i haven't actually gotten to the kill floor but um, it's a five minute drive and it's a short wait <laughs> so are we out of gas you guys know No, it's not. It's still clear. What do you got in there? Something disgusting. It's, it's a, a <laughs> yeah, it's a broth. Um, so Albert goes to the slaughterhouse and picks up um, a bunch of beef bones, and we basically make soup out of it, which adds protein to the pig's grain. So every time I pour it into their grain, I get a beef facial. <laughs> My least favorite part of the day. <laughs> I'll admit I ate a piece of bacon yesterday when we were camping, and it was like everybody's mouth dropped open. Like, what? Shamey said, "What's happening? What's going on here? Are you turning?" Albert, my brother, always says bacon's the gateway meat for vegetarians. You know, it's, uh... <laughs> so this is um, Dolores. She's pregnant. She's got a lot of apples there. Yeah, four piglets. That's Boromir over there. He's the dad. And he's hanging out with Little Red and... Oh, God, what's her name, Caleb? Uh, Wendell. So he's, this is Arizona here. Hey, girl. She's got her food. We lock her head in here so that she can't take off before I'm done. And then I always First squirt I uh, squirt out, so watch your mic there. Oh. Or you. <laughs> 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 
then it goes in the bucket. <laughs> I know that it would make sense for me to eat the meat that I'm raising. It makes sense because I'm raising it. I get to make sure that it has a happy life. And, um, and sometimes I want it. So I think, I mean, it's not as bad. We've had lots of conversations about there's nothing wrong with what we're doing. That we're giving the animal a good life and in exchange they're giving us milk or meat, or whatever. I don't know. And we're just, we're new, so we're still learning. And of, of course there's like unseen factors that come into play, like love and compassion, things that you can't really just like ignore. I mean, you can try to. I guess it's that when they can't give to you anymore, does that give you the right to end their life? And you, but um, like we just had to kill our heifer that we had had for two and a half years, Esperanza. And we all loved her. She was like a pet. We petted her and I hugged her she and was stuff. She laying there, sort of like surrendered. And I thought it was really weird. I thought, gosh, is there any way she could like feel some shift, you know? Or what could she know? I don't know. It made me sad. But you know, we had to slaughter her. It was a emotional experience. Yeah. Once you become a farmer, that's kind of the responsibility that you take on. You can't be a farmer and, and like, ignore that death is, is, is a part of it. You know, it's, it's just as much a part of it as life. I take satisfaction in the emotional journey of, of having to deal with animals in whatever way is most beneficial to everybody. I mean, obviously, Esperanza or a cow wouldn't say, oh, it's beneficial for me to be slaughtered and turn into meat. But um, as far as like my definition of destiny and farming and all that goes, she, there was no other way around it. If animals first entered the imagination as messengers or promises, what are you foretelling? Are you promise? You with eyes whose color changes according to the light. You who place hooves on my shoulders, straddle my back, cold nose at my ear, hot breath at my neck. Such goats, in such a dream, would linger with the insolence of a teenager. Yet there's this air of tact and politeness in the way you ignore and need me. Flesh has turned itself to stone or dust. We awaken. 
Dawn imparts a silence unlike no other. Listening to Making Waves on WGXC, a show about sound art produced by New Adventures in Sound Art. That was Flesh Has Turned Itself to Stone or Dust by Joan Schumann. Next up is Radiotherapy by Martin Rodriguez. Based in Montreal, Martin's music and artistic explorations are rooted in his colorful experiences coming from a Polish Mexican American home. Based on his personal medical experiences, radiotherapy is produced by harnessing radio frequencies alongside a transmission of Rodriguez's MRI brain scan through a transducer that is attached to a standalone guitar. The transducer forces the whole body of the guitar to vibrate. The resulting sound is a blend of musical notes and scanned AM radio frequencies resonating through the body of the guitar and passing through a chain of manipulated sound effects. This is Radiotherapy.
You just heard Radiotherapy by Martin Rodriguez. The final piece on today's edition of Making Waves is an excerpt of The City, a work by Debussy Sinna, who is a two-time Dora Awards winner for his outstanding sound work in theater. So here's an excerpt of The City by Debussy Sinna. One need not look further for proof that the city exists apart from us than to realize that the vast majority of its life is undetected and undetectable by our senses. Infra and ultra phenomena abound and permeate the cells of the conglomerate, offsetting them, but unknown to the higher levels of consciousness of its inhabitants. sensed, considered, understood, forgotten. The majority of the life of the city exists outside of this band, hidden from the higher senses. Those that inhabit the city then can be pictured as suspended in a medium they cannot sense or interact with, floating in a miasma of dimly perceived information, blind, deaf, helpless to counteract the subtle effects of radio waves of electric fields and particulates. The city's beings are jostled and fight against currents they cannot sense. You're listening to Making Waves on WGXC, a show about sound art produced by New Adventures in Sound Art. That last piece was an excerpt from Debashi Sinna's The City. Today's program shared with you a look at the 2017 Deep Wireless Festival, which happened this past February 2017 in Toronto, Canada. Our featured artists on our February 18th concert, Stories, Reflections, whom you heard today, were Parisa Sabat, Joan Schumann, Martin Rodriguez, and Debashi Sinna. You can learn more about Deep Wireless and other programming by New Adventures in Sound Art at www.nasa.ca. That's N. A-I-S-A dot C-A. Thanks for listening.